today we're wrapping up our series on ordinary faithfulness. Kind of the heartbeat behind this uh, series has been God does extraordinary things through very ordinary, mundane stuff. As Don has said, God is in the grit and the grime of our daily grind. We've explored God for us in community, God through us in evangelism. This morning, we're going to consider God with us in the spiritual disciplines. So if you would turn to John 15, verse 1 through 11. We're going to be in John 15, 1 through 11. John 15, 1, uh, here as I read from the CSB. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit, so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit, because you could do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch, and he withers. They gather them, throw them in the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, please teach us what it means to remain in Jesus, to abide in him, and help us to pursue the spiritual disciplines as a way of abiding in him. It's in Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. The spiritual disciplines should not be the goal in your Christian life. Your grand goal in life should not be to finally read the Bible in a year or to fast for 40 days and 40 nights or to hold an all-night prayer vigil without nodding off. No, the great goal of the Christian life is to know and enjoy Jesus. The spiritual disciplines can be a goal, but they should never be the goal. This morning, I hope to encourage you in your spiritual practice, but I want you to commit to them as a means and not as an end, to see the disciplines as a pathway and not as a destination. Today, we're going to explore disciplines from the perspective of John chapter 15, 1 through 11. And these are Jesus's parting instructions to his disciples before he goes to the cross in the gospel of John. He's giving them kind of the big picture of what Christians should expect in this world. So he says, you should expect trouble that's coming. You should also expect help, the Holy Spirit. He's coming. You should know the love of Christ deep down in your bones, and you should show that love in sacrificial ways. And at the heart of Jesus' message, John 17, 3, he says, you are to know and enjoy me and my Father and our love. That's eternal life. So I want to lay a foundation for the spiritual disciplines by looking at God the gardener, Jesus the true vine, and then abiding in Jesus through the spiritual disciplines. So 
Let's look at God the gardener. And the, the heartbeat behind this passage, my, my burden is that we would walk the path of spiritual disciplines to find joy in Jesus. Walk the path of spiritual disciplines to find joy in Jesus. So God the gardener. In that first verse, Jesus calls the Father a gardener. This reminds us once again in this series, this drumbeat, that God's work is in the mundane stuff of our lives. Uh, my dad is a gardener. When I was in third grade, we grew up in Mass. We moved from Weymouth, Mass, in an apartment, and we bought, uh, sorry, we moved from Natick, Mass, to Weymouth, Mass, where we bought a home. We had our first garden as a family. And there was a whole section in the back that was just all tore up. It had like thorns, car parts, tires. It was just a mess, a barren wasteland back there. So my dad, as a gardener, he went to work. He gave that space daily attention. He literally poured blood and sweat into the dirt. He took out boulders. You guys know that rocky New England soil. He took out boulder after boulder. He trimmed the hedges. He planted seeds. And he did a lot of digging. Day to day, the change was imperceptible. And it took mundane, hard work over years to get something beautiful. And Jesus said, God, our Father, is a gardener. He's the first gardener. He's the OG gardener. He planted a garden called Eden. We read about that in Genesis 2. And he filled it with beautiful fruit trees, and he planted Adam and Eve there, and they were his special fruit. He said, be fruitful and multiply. And as Adam and Eve turned away from God and thorns entered this world, God is still in the gardening business in this thorn-filled world. He comes to our thorny souls filled with lust, with hate, overrun with anxiety and envy, and our Father goes to work. He is making beauty from barrenness. And one of God's main gardening works is pruning or trimming. Uh, if you're not a gardener like myself, when you see a, like, a real, legit gardener go to town trimming a bush or, or pruning a fruit tree, you think they're killing it. They're just like hacking branches off left and right. But what they're really doing is they're cutting off what is lifeless, dead branches, so what's alive can flourish and that more fruit can grow. Well, God is doing this pruning work in you right now. If you think about it, about 20 plus years later, my dad finally made something gorgeous out of that space. What helped my dad keep going for 10, 15, 20 years? My dad loves his garden. And my dad had a vision of the beautiful future that garden could have under his care. If you go to the garden now in Weymouth, Mass., you'll see boulder walls, a fountain. I don't know how he got that thing to work. He's got like a little fish pond with some goldfish in there. He's got veggies growing out the wazoo. What, what keeps God gardening in our life? His love for you, his child. He sees the final vision of you. When he comes to your thorny, barren soul, he sees what you're going to become in Jesus, filled with fruit, looking like your Savior. And so he lovingly prunes the dead, lifeless things off us. And what is God after? Look at verse 2. He, that's the gardener, God prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. God is after fruit in your life. He doesn't prune for pruning's sake. He wastes no pain in our life. 
He uses the pain of pruning to make us more fruitful, and he's working in us an abundant fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. In the everyday stuff of life, as you clock in faithfully to your vocation, you are bearing the fruit of faithfulness. As you endure trials, real hard trials with your eyes on God, he's making in you rock-solid endurance. As you bring your anxieties to God, he is giving you the quiet fruit of peace. And as you seek Jesus, he's giving you the fruit of love and joy. But how exactly does God, the gardener, grow this fruit in us? We get the answer in verse 4 and 5, by being connected to Jesus, the true vine. So in this beautiful word picture Jesus is painting, God is the gardener, Jesus is the life-giving vine, and we're the branches. The disciples are the branches connected to Jesus. Look at verse 4 with me. Jesus says, Remain in me, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you could do nothing without me. So Jesus says, remain in me, abide in me. He's the true vine, the true source of life and joy. Every good and lasting fruit that you have as a Christian comes from the hands of Jesus. Put another way, you can do nothing of lasting eternal significance apart from him. I wonder if I could talk to you for a minute if you're not a Christian here. When Jesus says, I am the true vine, he's saying he's the only life giver. All other vines are false. Other people will never truly satisfy your deepest longings. If you try to get your purpose in life from your spouse, your child, your partner, a friend at school, you will crush that relationship and be left feeling empty. Other people were not meant to bring you everlasting happiness. And the same is true of things. The next iPhone, the latest fishing rod, the biggest TV, the new home, they promise life and joy, but they'll never deliver. Created things can't give you the life you were made for. Only Jesus can truly satisfy. He is the true vine. And Jesus freely offers satisfaction even to his enemies. For people who have tried to seek satisfaction in relationships, sex, money, all other places apart from him, he comes and dies for those sins. And he offers in his resurrection forgiveness of sins, restoration, and eternal satisfaction. So turn from your sin this morning. Look to Jesus on the cross for forgiveness and satisfaction. So Jesus commands his disciples to remain or to abide in him. What does that word abide mean? Christians like to use that. It's kind of like Christianese. And it sounds almost like meditative, monkish, like let's abide in Jesus. What does that actually mean? Well, it means to rest, to live in, to stay put. Uh, Those of you who have dogs know what it means to abide. Your dog likely has a spot in your home that it regularly returns to. Maybe it's their dog bed or a spot right by the window where the sun comes in. Wherever they go throughout the day, they're always going to circle back and go to that one spot. Well, we can learn from your dog, and we are supposed to rest, find our home in Jesus. And Jesus specifically wants us to abide in his love. Look at verse 9 with me. 
Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. Remain in my love. So the, that, that dog bed, the place we are supposed to go back to regularly, is the love of Jesus. And we abide in Christ's love by both seeing his love and by showing his love. Where would you go to see the love of Jesus? There's many places you could see it. Here's three. Creation, his choosing, and the cross. Where do we go to see God's love? Let's pull up John 17, 24. Jesus says, Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Before God made a thing, Father was loving Son. Son was loving Father with the Spirit in the mix. The Father loved the Son fully, freely, and forever. And Jesus says, that same love that the Father has for me, I have for you. God didn't create you because you is needy. God didn't create you to prove yourself. He created you to invite you into the love between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. So we see his love in creation and also his choosing. Why did God choose you, Christian, to be part of his family? Look at Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. For you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples of the face of the earth. The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you. Why? Not because you are more numerous than all peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you. Did you catch that? The Lord loved you and chose you. Why? Because he loves you. It's circular reasoning. He loves you because he loves you. Not because you're a pastor, not because you win at sword drills, not because you're an obedient uh, child or a great parent or grandparent, not because you haven't missed a day of work for years, not because you're a stand-up citizen. He loves you because he loves you. And he showed that love by sending his son. This is some of the most liberating news in the world, that his love is based on him and not you. If God didn't choose you because you're beautiful, he won't forsake you when you're acting ugly. So we see Christ's love in creation, his choosing, and the cross. Look at John 15, 13, right under our passage. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is the one, the best of friends, who willingly laid down his life, not just for his friends, but for his enemies. And this is the center of God's love, the cross. The cross is our rock-solid confidence that God truly loves us because in love, he sent his son to take our place on the cross. I just want to share a testimony with you as we think about abiding in God's love, seeing his love. just want to share a little testimony of how I've been doing that personally. Um, some of you know we've had church planting plans in Henniker, um, and most of you know, if you've, you've been members at this church, that all those plans kind of came to an abrupt end at the beginning of April when Olivia and I went out to Texas for an Acts 29 church planting assessment. Uh, it's, at that assessment, people loved us enough to say, uh, I don't think it's wise to plant a church right now. There's certain places in my own soul that need to get healthy with depression and anxiety. There's other dynamics as well. And this was like super hard news to hear. 
Uh, if you know us and the Sheards and the Stearns, the team out there in Henniker, um, the Sheards and us have been planning for this church plant for three years. And when it kind of came to an abrupt end for now, um, I'm tempted to feel like a failure. And I don't know about you, for those of you who struggle with dark thoughts or depression, when it rains, it pours. So last week I was, <laughs> you know, pouring my heart out to Olivia and I just felt like an awful friend. Like I haven't been checking in on a couple guys in my life. I haven't been loving them well. And I felt guilty because they love me so well. We're sitting in our bedroom and Olivia and I are talking. She said this to me. Your friends love you because of who you are and not because of what you do. And then she said this. I think that's the big thing God is teaching you. And at that moment, I, I abided in Christ's love, knowing that whether I plant a church or not, the Lord knows those desires, God still loves me. And it's the same for you, for those of you who are looking to Jesus. Whether you do so-called great things for God or not, he still loves you. Abide in his love. So we see God's love, but we also show God's love. Those are the two ways to abide in Christ's love, seeing his love and by showing his love. Look at verse 10 with me. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and remain in his love. Uh, there's two ways to read that verse. Maybe some of you are feeling that tension. The first way to read that verse is we only receive God's love if we obey. That can't be the interpretation because while we were still sinners, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. The second is this. As we love others, we know more of God's love. As we walk in obedience in Christ's command to love others sacrificially, we know more of his love. This is the reality in this verse. As we show his love, we know his love better. And so Jesus calls us to abide in his love by seeing it and by showing it in sacrificial ways. We talked about the dog earlier, but as we in New Hampshire go out hiking and fishing this spring and summer, we're all going to see those orange-bellied turtles that are sitting on logs. When you see the turtle, I want you to think this. Okay, Solomon said, go to the ant. I'm saying, go to the turtle. Because these cold-blooded creatures, they go up on the log, and they just sit there for hours under the sun rays. And when you see that turtle this summer, I want you to see that turtle and think, I'm called to abide in Christ's love, just like that turtle. Okay, you might be wondering, when are we going to get to spiritual disciplines? Here we are. But why all this abiding talk? Why all this love talk? It's because I want to help you see why we do the spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines exist for abiding in the love of Jesus. Often from the pulpit or the books we read, we always hear this, read your Bible more, pray more. But we don't often go deep into why. So with that foundation, that spiritual disciplines exist for us abiding in Christ's love, let's talk about abiding in Jesus through spiritual disciplines. We're going to get down to some nuts and bolts here. And I want to explore the what, the why, and the how of spiritual disciplines. What, why, and the how. First of all, what are they? The spiritual disciplines are biblical practices that Christians use to grow their relationship with the triune God. Spiritual disciplines are biblical practices 
that Christians use to grow their relationship with God. We see two of them in verse 7. Look at verse 7, John 15, 7. Jesus says, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. So those two hallmark disciplines, the word and prayer, are in that verse. And so spiritual disciplines are fundamentally a way of communing with God, a way of listening to him and talking back to him. And here's an incomplete list of spiritual disciplines. There's many, many, many more. But I just pulled up eight for us. These are practices that the Bible commends us to practice. Reading the word. That's hearing God's voice. Meditating. Take a chunk of scripture and reflect on it. Meditating is more like savoring an everlasting gobstopper. Prayer. We pour our hearts out to a loving father. That could look like journaling. That could look like Thanksgiving lists. Fasting. We fast from stuff to get full on Jesus. Solitude. Getting alone with God. Silence. Getting quiet before God. Rest and recreation. We take a day off or we have rhythms of rest to say, I am not God. I'm only a creature. And corporate worship. So good on you. You're practicing one of these. We regularly gather with Christians to worship the name of Jesus. So those are the spiritual disciplines. And there's a lot more. But why do we do them? Why do we practice them? In verse 11 of our passage, Jesus gives us the answer. Verse 11, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Spiritual disciplines exist for us to find joy in Jesus. And I hope that liberates someone this morning. If spiritual disciplines exist for our joy in Jesus, though, you might be wondering, what should I do when I don't have joy in Jesus? If you've been reading your Bible, praying, going to church, and you haven't been experiencing happiness in Jesus. First know this, you are not alone. One third of the psalm book, the the hymn book that God gave us, the psalms, are laments. One third of the songs God gave us sound a lot like this. God, where are you? I don't feel happy in you right now. You feel very far away. I feel numb. So what do you do when you're reading your Bible, praying, coming to worship, and you don't feel joy? Take up some of these laments and be honest with God on how he feels far away. But then you come up against this question. We all experience this. Should we stop? Should we just stop reading our Bibles? Stop praying? Stop going to church? Because I literally am not getting anything from any of these disciplines. Those of you who know me know that I really love food. I'm a foodie. I love restaurants, cooking it, drinking. Well, when I got COVID last October, I lost my taste. And that was like a heavy blow. That may have come with some tears. Lost my taste. And it, it took months to recover my taste fully. And I kept pleading with God to bring back my taste. But did I stop eating? No, I needed food to survive. But even though I was eating, it was joyless. I was like eating that oatmeal from the matrix, like that gooey, sloppy stuff. It was like eating that with whatever. And so I kept eating and I kept pleading with God, eating and pleading. And my prayers got more and more earnest. There's a couple of times I seriously shed a tear like, Lord, Jesus, do something about my taste buds. I need to taste this. And after months of eating and pleading, now I taste joy. 
This month, the Lord has restored my taste to me, and I could taste burgers and peanut butter Oreo fraps from Peach uh, Beach Plum, uh, lamb chops and red wine. It was so worth the wait. So numb Christian, unhappy Christian, keep showing up here on Sundays. Keep showing up to your missional communities and opening your Bible and praying. Keep eating and pleading and hold on to these two promises from Jesus. Write this down if you are feeling just numb to God in your spiritual practice. John 16, 20 and John 16, 22. That's John 16, 20 and John 16, 22. In this same um, conversation Jesus is having that we're reading about today, he says this to his disciples. You will, have, you will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy, as Jesus promised. This next promise, John 16, 22, is about Jesus dying and resurrecting, but how much more true is it about Jesus going up to heaven and coming back? This is his promise to you. John 16, 22. So you also have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Hear that from Jesus. You have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. So we talked about the what of spiritual disciplines, the why to find joy in Jesus, and now the how. How do we do them? There are two main approaches to the spiritual disciplines. One is life-draining, and one is life-giving. And it all depends on how you approach them. The life-draining way is approaching disciplines as earning something from God. And if, if you're like me, you've experienced this. You always feel like you're behind on your Bible reading plan. You always feel like you don't pray enough, don't do enough, and it drains you. For those of you who are on this life-draining path of spiritual disciplines, hear this. Disciplines don't earn you anything. They are a way of receiving. God has already given you everything in Jesus. Disciplines don't earn you anything. They don't get you a badge of honor. They're not for a report card. God doesn't, he's not giddy in heaven like handing out gold stars to those who read their Bible in a year. That doesn't really excite him. Like it was a reward. God is the reward. He is our prize. And he has given himself freely to us. So the life-giving way is approaching disciplines as receiving God's life-giving gifts. Bible reading and other disciplines are all good that in that they help us enjoy God. So pursue the life-giving way. Well, the New Testament gives us total freedom in practice when it comes to spiritual disciplines. And our legalistic hearts don't like it. We want rules. If you look at kind of some of the, the religions of the world, some of the man-made religions of the world, they are filled with rules. Like what you can and can't eat. What you can and can't wear. What direction you have to pray in. One religion even regulates the type of undergarments you wear. Lord, have mercy. But the Christian faith gives general guidelines and leaves room for wisdom and creativity. When it comes to the spiritual practices, the Christian faith gives general guidelines and it leaves room for wisdom and creativity. It's like the, the lines that are painted around a soccer field. The guy or gal with the spray paint, the white spray paint, they paint the whole soccer field and then they let the kids play in the field. That's what God does with us with the spiritual disciplines. He paints out the parameters and he says, use your wisdom, use your creativity and just have a blast. 
Our legalistic hearts buck up against this. We say, like, how many times should I pray, God? And he says, pray at all times. We're like, oh, thanks, that helps. Uh, How many chapters or verses should I read in a day? He says, meditate day and night. He gives us the guidelines and lets us run run free within it. So what our job is, is, is to take the factors of our life and create a form of discipline that fits your season. So you should sit down and think through what kind of season of life am I in? Am I single or am I married? Do I have a young family or empty nesters? What kind of job do I have? How demanding is it on my body and on my mind? And how do I learn best? Those are all certain questions you should be asking regularly. And come up with a spiritual discipline plan that fits your season. You'll have to reevaluate season by season and do not compare your practice with others. I want to give you an example of kind of wisdom and creativity in one of the disciplines. So let's take up prayer. What does wisdom and creativity look like when it comes to prayer? I drew some examples from church history. Um, So there's the first guy, Brother Lawrence. He was a French monk in the 1600s, and his job in the monastery was to wash dishes. And he had some of his best prayer times while he was washing dishes. So you could pray while you're doing a hobby or a chore. This is unofficial, but he's almost like the patron saint of those who have ADHD, who need something in their hands so they could slow their minds down. I don't know if he had it or not, but pray while you're doing hobbies or chores. Then you have the great Celtic tradition and St. Patrick, the men and women in Ireland who, who were masters of meeting God in nature. And they would go on wonderful prayer walks, looking at the sea and the cliff, and they would just exude praise to Christ the Creator. Then you have singing your prayer and the beautiful heritage of African-American slaves. Those slaves had no time for coffee and quiet time at their favorite Starbucks. They didn't own a Bible. Most of them, in suppression from their slave masters, were not taught to read. You could read, it, read about it in um, Frederick Douglass's narrative. So what did they do? They sang their laments to God. Frederick Douglass just talks about the eerie, beautiful sound uh, of these African-American brothers and sisters singing their prayers to God in the pines of the South. And then this is probably my favorite, but get creative with your prayer closet. You have Susanna Wesley. Most of you have heard, if you're a Christian, been around the church for a minute, most of you have heard about John and Charles Wesley, great preachers, and they wrote beautiful hymns. But you need to learn about their mom, Susanna Wesley. This, this woman had 19 children. She knew suffering. Nine of those children died in infancy. And with those remaining t- uh, 10, she was a Renaissance woman. She was like baker, chef, educator. She was just killing it in the home. Where could Susanna Wesley pray? Where could she find a quiet place? What she would do is she would take her apron and she'd just flip it over her head. That was her prayer closet. She would flip an apron over her head because that's how hungry she was for God and his help. So these are a few examples from Brother Lawrence, the Celtic Christians, African-American slaves in the South, and Susanna Wesley, of how we can get creative and even use wisdom and how God has made us to think about these spiritual disciplines. Uh, We've preached a series in collaboration with uh, Christ Community Church in Ware. One of the pastors there, Rob, has put together a beautiful document laying out 
explanations for the, the spiritual practices and even a little way to make a plan. So if any of you want that document to kind of come up with a creative, wise plan for your spiritual disciplines, holler at me or email the church website and we'll get that to you. As we sink this in a little bit to apply it, uh, here's a few ideas. Just take one of them. If you're newer to the disciplines or you're a newer Christian, one of the best things you could do is ask an older believer to help you in a particular discipline. If you want to learn how to pray, find someone whose prayer life you admire and ask them to teach you how to pray. And if you're that older saint, kind of discipling, mentoring, just remember some things are better caught than taught. So if someone comes to you and says, can you teach me how to pray? Don't give them 12 lessons on prayer. Just invite them into your prayer life. So that's for newer believers or people who are, this is a new concept too. For those of you who have been walking with Jesus for a little while now, I encourage you to try a new discipline. Look at that list of eight or even look at spiritual discipline lists on, online. And this spring, this summer, this season, just try one new discipline. You don't know, it might be one of the most life-giving things for you. Um, so get creative. If you've never taken a half day away in the whites or on a lake with your journal and your Bible, maybe some music, go for it. If you've never fasted, try it out. And then this is for most of us here. Revive or continue an old discipline with fresh expectancy. Maybe you've been reading your Bible for months now, maybe even years, and you haven't tasted joy. Plead, even with tears, that God would let you taste joy. Revive prayer walks. Whenever I get away from prayer walks, I could feel it in my body, in my soul. And I'd get back to it. Get back to old disciplines with fresh expectancy. The spiritual disciplines, they are not a destination, but they are the pathway to joy in Jesus. Opening your Bibles, opening your mouth in prayer, showing up to church, Getting alone with God, fasting from food and social media are all very ordinary things that everyone here can do. They're like ordinary shovels and clippers. And God uses these tools in our life to create something beautiful, to bear in us the fruit of love and joy. So let's go to God with fresh expectancy and walk the path of spiritual disciplines to find joy in Jesus. Father, thank you for your loving gardening work in our thorny lives and souls. Please cause us all to bear the sweet fruit of love and joy in Jesus. I pray especially for those who don't taste joy, but just taste sorrow and the saltiness of tears. Would you meet them on the pathway of spiritual disciplines? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.